you left a line out. What was the line? So she's got that Renner gene that um, sometimes uses sarcasm to make a point. And I, I, love, I love that approach. I, you know, grew up spiritually speaking, listening to Christian music that always had a bit of a bite to it. That's why I don't listen to Christian music any longer, because none of it really has a message of conviction at all. But uh, Keith Green used to have a bite to a lot of his songs. Uh, um, you know, there was a fellow, Steve Taylor. He used a lot of sarcasm in his songs, but they were very, very good. They got you to think. And this is what the church needs. The church needs to be shaken out of its complacency. Because we live in a lukewarm culture. And the church is lukewarm. And as we're doing this, this study, this series on discipleship, biblical discipleship, you cannot escape the fact that God, that the Lord, that Jesus calls for commitment. Not half-hearted, you know, I'll follow you when it's convenient, but full-on or nothing. And this is why, you know, I always encourage you to be in the Word so that we could have a biblical worldview, so that we're thinking biblically, so that we're seeing Christianity and we're hearing about Christianity from Jesus' mouth, you know, from the apostles' uh, writings, you know. We're going to, back to the source. I don't care what a modern day teacher, you know, has to say about what a disciple looks like or anything. I, I want to know what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? On these things. Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9. In fact. Dropping back to verse 23. We've read this. A number of times. I've, I've Not here in Luke. But in Mark's gospel. It says. As foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But the son of man. Has nowhere to lie his head. Then he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my, home, my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, guys, I mentioned two weeks ago when we began this series, um, I didn't come up with this on my own. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. I probably got it from Warren Wearsby just because Warren Wearsby's style is that he usually likes to use... Um, the same, you know, words that start with the same letter. And so I had mentioned uh, two weeks ago that a disciple, a true disciple, is one that goes from curious, curious about Jesus, curious about his teaching, curious about his miracles, curious about 
his power, his resurrect, death and resurrection. They move from curious about Jesus to convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be, that Jesus, what he has to say, what he teaches is truth, and it must be heeded. We must abide in his words. So from curious to, to convince, and then the third step is committed. Committed to following Jesus, committed to making him known, committed to living for Christ. And I mentioned it a moment ago, you cannot get around the fact, when you look at the scriptures, when you look at what Jesus has to teach in the gospel accounts, and then what the apostles taught in the epistles, that the Lord, and, 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 and he's the only one that matters, right? Because we're not following anyone else, we're following him. So if, you were follow, if I was following you, you could come up with your own standards and your own rules and your own conditions and everything. And if I was going to follow you, then I would have to abide in that. But we're following Jesus, and so we want to go back to the source and say, what does Jesus say about disciples? And Jesus communicates through his word, and we see it over and over again, that a disciple must be committed. That's what he requires. In fact, we could say that's what he demands. He demands, he requires commitment, full commitment. Why? Because being a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ is difficult. And if we're not committed, we will waffle. We will, we will vacillate. We, will, we, we, may, we may depart. We may say, this is too difficult. You say, oh, that, that doesn't happen. That, you know, remember Demas? Paul wrote... Uh, Demas has departed having loved this world. Demas, he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. Demas was one who served, ministered with the Apostle Paul. And then when he found that it just wasn't convenient any longer or was too difficult or whatever it might have been, he split. What about Mark? John Mark, we're studying the gospel account that, that he wrote. John Mark. John Mark had an experience like that. He's, he's with Paul and Barnabas, and, and there's this relationship between Barnabas and a literal blood relationship between Barnabas and John Mark. And John Mark, for whatever reason, he departs from them. And so he goes home. And so the next time that Paul was putting together a mission trip, a mission journey, where they're going to travel around the region and, and continue preaching the gospel and establishing churches and everything... Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, and Paul said, no, we're not taking him. Was he being a hard nose? No, he just said he wasn't, he wasn't fit for the task in the past. Now, we know that John Mark matured, and he changed, and he repented, and, and we see John Mark really being uh, kind of a companion with Peter later on in, in some of the, you know, in Peter's epistles. But we need to be committed to Jesus because... That's what he requires, but I'm telling you, it's going to become more and more difficult to be a disciple, so we need to be committed to him. Guys, are you watching, have you seen the hostility that's growing toward Christians? Do you watch the news? Do you, do you read things that, you know, the politicians are saying? Have you, have you noticed there is, this, there is this repetitive, you know, uh, thing that's happening this um white evangelical christians 
Could you imagine saying that, you know, uh, brown Muslims? I mean, that boy, that, you, you couldn't get away with that for a moment. But it's, the problem is white people, and usually white males, and that are Christian, that are evangelical Christian, which I personally wouldn't even use that title any longer because, in my opinion, the evangelicals have gone bonkers. So I like the biblical born again, born again, born of the spirit Christians. But there is this growing hostility. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. And I'm telling you, it's going to become more and more difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we need to be committed. We need to be people of the word. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to stand firm in him. So we have three fellows here. And I read through it. And the question I had as you read the three different individuals that were there, my question is, did any of them, did any of them follow Jesus? And we don't know because, of course, the scripture doesn't tell us if any of them followed Jesus. But you kind of get, you know, you, you come to the conclusion as you're reading the text that probably none of them followed Jesus because of the reluctancy that we see in them. So the first man, he was a scribe. We see this in, in Matthew uh, chapter 8. In verse 18, he was a scribe. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Boy, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I'll follow you wherever you go. It doesn't matter where you go, I'll follow you. And then Jesus, he, his response, he didn't say, oh, that's wonderful. You know, I really need uh, disciples. I really need men that are committed and that are going to go out and preach the kingdom of God and, you know, the the message that the kingdom of God is near and, and things like that. I, I need that. He doesn't say that to this fellow. He says to this fellow, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. So that would get you to stop and think, okay, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, what is he saying? Well, I think that what Jesus was saying, listen, you can come and follow me, but you need to know that I have little to offer you concerning material comforts. So, you know, count the cost, come and follow me. But, um, but, but you need to realize that when, when I lie, lay my head down tonight, I'm not sure where that's going to be. And I'll tell you right up front that it's not going to be in the inn, you know, some nice hotel or motel, you know, on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know where I'm going to lie my head. And the fellow, you know, we don't know how he responded. Now, let me show you something, because we could look at this and almost dismiss it and say, well, things are different now, and things are different now. But we could say things are different now because Jesus was literally physically on the earth. He was literally speaking to these individuals he was asking them to to physically with their feet to follow him and he was going to go to different locations and so they needed to count the cost because you know there was no certainty that they would have a place to lie their head at night and there really weren't any certainties whatsoever they needed to just consider it 
And things are different now because Jesus is not physically on the earth any longer. And discipleship, we could, we could argue and say, well, it looks so much different. You know, it's different than it was back then. And now it really little commitment. And, and the Lord doesn't call us to such things. But you wonder, why was Jesus calling these men to follow him? Look at the next chapter in Luke, Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 or 72. You'll see that in your notes, in your margin there. 70 others or 72 others. So that's, that's um, above the, the 12, you know. The 12 were with him. He had sent them out. We see this in the gospel account. He sends them out two by two. He gives them a mission. They go out. They return. Here's another group. It's, the 12 aren't part of this group. These are 72 others. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, look at the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest. What's our job? <laughs> our job is pray, pray, Lord, Lord, the harvest is plenty for the harvest is great. Lord, we need help. We need laborers. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is his harvest. And so verse 3 says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Okay, so listen. See, this sheds light on, you know, you could read the text that we just read in, at the end of chapter 9 and say, boy, why does Jesus have to be so harsh, so insensitive? Read the text. He says, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out as lambs before, uh, uh, among wolves. And he tells them, carry neither money bag. See, the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. I want you to go up, but I don't want you to bring money. I don't want you to bring extra money. I want you to trust. Or, nor uh, knapsack, nor sandals. And greet no one along the road. I don't want you to be distracted. You're on mission. So you need to go. You're, you're, you've got a task before you. This isn't a leisure time. It's not vacation. So he says, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, look at this, eating and drinking such things as they give. So, so Lord, no money, no knapsack, nothing extra, no credit card. I'm, I need to trust you. And I need to trust that whatever home opens their door to me, to us, to the two of us, that they're going to feed us and they're going to take care of our daily needs for the labor is worthy of his wage. Do not go from house to house. Don't look for a better gig, you know. Boy, that dinner was pretty rough last night. You know, maybe we could find a better place tonight. He goes, don't do that. You're on mission. And of course, it goes on from there. And many of you are familiar with that. So Jesus says to the fellow, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. He, he says this, and then 
in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 59, it goes to another person. So we don't know how the fellow responded. It just kind of moves on from there. And it says, then he, then Jesus, said to another, follow me. So this is a little different. The first fellow, he initiated the thing. He's the one who emphatically said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. But the second fellow is different because Jesus, he, he initiates it. And he says, you follow me. And his response, as we read a moment ago, he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, again, at face value, you say, well, what's wrong with that? Jesus, don't you care? His father's dead. He wants to have a funeral for his father. He's got arrangements to make and everything else. And you, and you just so heartlessly say, let the dead bury the dead. Now, guys, listen. If you are students of the word of God, if you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have a biblical worldview because you're in the word of God, you're studying the scriptures, you know the nature of Jesus. So you don't say, yeah, he's harsh, he's indifferent, boy, he's a difficult person. You say, there must be something else going on. There must have been something going on when Jesus said to the first man, foxes have holes, birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has no one. Jesus knows who's, who he's speaking to. He knows what's motivating. He knows what's in their heart. He knows how to address people. And with this fellow... You know, you have to ask, was his father dead? Was his father dead or was he waiting for his father to get sick and die? Now, that might seem silly, but but I want you to follow this for a moment. Was he concerned that there would be conflict with his father? My dad would never approve. So... I want to come follow you, and I will come follow you, but dad has to be out of the way because uh, he would never approve of me leaving all, picking up my cross daily, and following you. You know, guys, it's not just the non-believer who would say, you know, dial it back. Don't be too fanatical. Don't be too extreme. I've heard this type of things from Christian Christians. Dial it back. Listen, it's okay to believe in Jesus. It's good to believe in Jesus. And we're so glad that you believe in Jesus because, because sadly for a lot of people, they're not true disciples of Jesus Christ. They don't consider the walk that God has called us to, the mission that Jesus has appointed for us, the Great Commission. All they care about is I place my faith in Christ. I'm going to heaven when I die. Everything between conversion and death is mine. I'll live it the way I choose to live it. It's my life. It's like that song. Give me a king-size bed, you know. I, you know, just kind of making excuses, you know. Yes, I, you know, I'd like to follow you, Lord, but, but, but I, I need to put it off for now. But I'll get around to it. You know, some have suggested, and of course we don't know for sure, and there's nothing in the text that would indicate that this was the case, but some had suggested that maybe it was his father's second burial. Now, for us, we're thinking, what in the world does that mean? 
But for the Jews, they would, they would lay their deceased. They would wrap them. They would lay them in a tomb. And about a year later, they would go in as the flesh would decay. And, and they would go back into the tomb. They would gather up the bones. They would put them into an ashray box, so a smaller box. And then they would put the back box further back into the, the tomb. And by doing this, you could fit a generation after generation in a family tomb. And so that's what they would do. And some have suggested, some commentators say, well, possibly he was even saying, you know, well, it's, my, it's the second burial. Was he just making a lame excuse and Jesus, in, in essence, called him on it? Because I encourage you quite often, and I hope that you do this, that when you read the scriptures, when you're studying the scriptures, that you're asking questions. We don't want to presume. We don't want to, we don't, we don't want to you know, come up with theories. But it's good to ask questions because it gets us thinking about what's going on here. Otherwise, we have to say at face value, Jesus is rude. And Jesus is not rude. You see what I'm saying? So, so there has to be something going on here. And you begin to wonder, Jesus, don't you need disciples? And can I answer this question? I, of course I could answer it, and I will answer it. Jesus doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything. He's God. You know, for the person, for the, for the Christian, for the man, for the woman, for the pastor, for the missionary that acts like they've given up so much to serve the Lord. I suggest to you, they do not have a biblical worldview. They do not know the scriptures. We haven't given up anything to follow the Lord. We have gained. We are blessed. He counts us worthy, putting us into the ministry. Oh, Lord, thank you. Oh, Lord, I'm not deserving of this. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Oh, you're so kind to me. That's the right approach to take. Because really, we're not getting what we deserve. If we're getting what we deserve, judgment, toast, you know. But you wonder, what does this mean, you know? Uh, (laughs) Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go, and and look at, he, he doubles down. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. And then he gives them a mission. You go and preach the kingdom of God. So again, we can look at this harsh, no. What a blessing. You, you've, you actually called him. Just like you called the rich, young, uh, honest um, ruler. I forget all the, the list that I had concerning the fellow. Same thing. Jesus invites the fellow to come and follow him. Just like he did the other 12 and, and others, other men and women come and follow me. He got the same invitation and he went away sad because he had great wealth. But what does it mean? You know, the Jews used the word dead to express indifference or uh, to express something that has no influence or no power over a person. The Apostle Paul, remember what he wrote to Christians in Romans chapter 7, verse 4? He said that Christians that we are dead to the law. He didn't say the law is dead to us. He said you are dead to the law. 
And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul wrote that in Christ we must reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The meaning behind it is that sin should no longer influence us or have control over us as it once did. We're dead to it. That's why Paul says, reckon yourself to be dead. See, in Christ you're a new creature in Christ. Oh, yes, Lord, but my flesh is still there. My sinful nature is still raging at times. Yes, yes, yes. That's why you need to reckon it to be dead. Indeed. That it doesn't have any influence, any control over your life any longer. The non-believer is dead to Christ. Not dead in Christ. Dead to Christ. What does that mean? Christ has no influence upon them. No impact upon their life. They don't hear his voice. Remember John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. They, they recognize the shepherd's voice. They're not going to fall for deception. They're not going to fall for the, this, these demon, doctrines of demons and all. They, they recognize my voice. They know my voice. Jesus, I believe, was saying, in essence, let those who are, who are not interested in my work, those who are dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, take care of the dead. Maybe the fellow had heard what Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to... And so when, when Jesus comes and says, follow me, he's, he's thinking, oh, wait, wait a minute. I just heard what you said to the other fellow, and I don't know that this would be an enjoyable thing. I don't know, I don't know that it would be worth the, the heartache and the, the hardship and, and all. It's sad that many are only willing to give to the Lord what they don't really want or the leftovers of their time. It's sad that we, that many, let me phrase it that way, that many are willing to give so little to the one who's given so much. It's sad. Guys, a true disciple never moves beyond the sense of awe that they have been saved by Jesus, that they have been rescued, that they belong to him. They never move beyond the awe, the, the amazement that, that I am a child of God because of Jesus, because of what he did, what he accomplished upon the cross. I belong to him. They never move beyond that. And I'm telling you, if, if, if your heart is dull toward that type of thing, you need to pray. You need to ask the Lord, Lord, what's wrong with me? What's wrong, this, this lack of sensitivity, this lack of, you know. I think of the... You know, I remember the day that I surrendered my life to the Lord. I don't remember every day that I rejected the opportunity, the invitation to believe on Jesus. And there were many of those days. 
that the gospel was presented to me, and I, you know, no thank you, not interested, you know. But I remember the day that I received Christ, and I, you know, I could, I could almost feel what I felt, though it was almost 45 years ago. The feeling that this, there was a release, there was something had changed, something was different. I had said the sinner's prayer, so it's not just saying a prayer. I had said the sinner's prayer many, many times before. As a captive audience, hitchhiking, you know, and I'm in someone's car, you know, they're driving 60 miles an hour uh, down the freeway and they're sharing the gospel with me and would you like to receive Christ? And I'm thinking, well, maybe I should, I won't get out of this car. And, you know, and I would say the prayer. I'd say the prayer as a hitchhiker. I'd say the prayer down at Balboa Park in San Diego. I'd say the prayer in front of uh, Safeway or Albertsons, excuse me, in Poway, California. I said the prayer on the beach. I've said the prayer in the water, <laughs> in a lineup, surfing with people. I said the prayer at a Christian gathering that I was invited to, and it meant nothing. But on the day that I surrendered my life to the Lord, man, there was, there was no ifs, ands, and buts about it. My life was changed from that moment forward. And, you know, all these years later, I, I am in awe. Usually, my conversation with the Lord on Sunday mornings when I'm driving in to church goes something like this. Lord, I can't believe that you let me do what I get to do. You know me like no one knows me. You know the thoughts, my heart, the dark areas, you know the sins, you know that that no one knows, you know the pride or, or whatever it might be, you know. All the things that you guys have, you know, I have. And and I and I'll say, and yet, Lord, you graciously have called me to this task, and you've equipped me for this task. It'd be frustrating if you're called to something and then you couldn't do it because you weren't really equipped for it. Tracy and I, we live um, down from EB. And so we will walk down there. If the tide's out, we'll walk down there. It's about a you know, seven-minute walk, something like that from our house, 10-minute walk maybe. And... Um, We'll walk down to E.B. We love E.B. E.B. Beach has dear memories. We have we have old uh, videos <laughs> of of our kids. Uh, Molly was just an infant, and uh, Tracy was reminding me last night as we we're sitting there watching a family out there surfing. She said, "I remember sitting in this location." Uh, with Molly when she was a baby, and, and we remember it because we have a videotape of it, you know. And we'd take the kids down there. You know, when we first came up and when we raised our family, we didn't have uh, money. But we had the beach. By the way, you know, to each their own, but you live on Whidbey Island. 
<laughs> you live in a beautiful spot. Do you know that people come here to vacation? Go to the beach and see all the tourists on the beach. And then thank the Lord that you get to live here. And you get to go to that beach or whatever beach you choose anytime you want. Enjoy it. Thank the Lord for it. But, you know, we were, we went down there. We drove down because the tide was up. And, and so we're just chatting. And, um, and I forget what I started with. Something about high school, you know, and, and, uh, Oh, that, that's what it was. We, we drove by the, the forest ranger's house. And Tracy said, oh, wouldn't that be a wonderful job to be a forest ranger? And I said, yeah, that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was in high school. I wanted to go to Humboldt, and I wanted to get a degree, and I wanted to go into the forestry department. And my guidance counselor... Uh, met with me, I think it was in 10th grade, and said to me at the time, this is in the mid-70s, you know, Dan, how many students they take for the forestry uh, program at Humboldt? And I think it was 10 or 20 students. I don't know what it was. And then she went on to say, there's no way you would ever, <laughs> you would ever make it. You're, you, academically, there's just no way you would ever be able to make it. So I, I'm telling my wife this, and, and she's saying, oh, that's so mean. Teachers, well, why would they say something like that? And I said, well, babe, after two weeks in my Spanish class, my Spanish teacher walked me outside and said, Danny, I want you to drop my class because you'll never, ever learn Spanish. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, as we were talking about that, I said, you know, babe, what would be funny, because I was such a shy kid, someone would say something to me, the teacher would call on me, I would get tears here in my eyes, I'm sure that my face turned beet red, I was super insecure, and, um, and, and you know, and, and I probably when I responded, I just sounded like a complete idiot, you know, and eventually, you know, the further on you get in school, um, you know, I, I hate to admit this, but I'm going to admit it. When I was a junior and a, a senior, I just acted like I was wasted all the time. And they didn't call on me. And I was never wasted at school, ever. But they would just kind of say, look at him, he's checked out, you know. He's just kind of, because that's how I was making it through fly low, you know. But I look at, you know, I, I come to faith in Christ and, and Jesus calls me and immediately I want to serve him. Not to pay him back, but I just want to serve him. I think, you know, when I was out there in the world and I was, you know, kind of going into the Krishna thing and the Maharishi, you know, yogi thing and stuff like that, I would... I would fast, and I would do this, and I would do that, and I would, you know, sacrifice for different things. And these were all a joke. And I don't understand how people following Jesus, they're just, they lose the sense of awe of who he is and what he's done. To where we say, Lord, I just, I want to live my whole life serving you, Lord. I don't want to ever stop doing this, Lord. In fact, my prayer is, Lord, when you're done with me, just take me home. There is no retirement plan. 
You know, I want to get that motor home and travel around. No, Lord, I want to serve you, Lord. I want to continue to serve you until either you, that trumpet blast, and you call me home or you call me home through death. I just want to serve you, Lord. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater joy than that. And Jesus is asking these men to come and to follow him. I had mentioned, it seems like an hour ago now, but I had mentioned that perhaps a fellow didn't want to get into it with his dad. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34? 1034. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Don't you love it when you read something you go, where did that verse come from? You know, this isn't my Jesus. He's got a little lamb on his shoulders and he's like a big ball of love. And you just squeeze him and love oozes out. Read the scriptures. He is love. But the problem is, is that we have this weird view of love. Greater love has no one than this than one laid down his life for his friend. That's love. And then you look at how he laid down his life for those he loved. It was gruesome. It was gross. It was disgusting. You know, that's love. That's the expression of love. But Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What does this mean? James Dobson is rolling in his grave. We're supposed to focus on the family. It's the family. It's the family. Well, let's read on so we understand the context in which he's saying these things. He who loves father or mother more than me, look at, is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up Take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. A sword. Some of us have experienced this. Some of you have experienced it. There's wives that have experienced this. There's a sword. There's division. Listen to me, guys. Again, we're students of the Bible. So what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that we need to love our wives with an undying love. We need to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We need to love one another, that they will know who we are as disciples by our love for one another. We know what the Bible So the Bible's not saying don't love your kids, don't love your husband, don't love your wife, don't love your family. That's not what it's saying. God is, the Lord is saying this, your love, which is going to be way up here, the world's love is waning. Natural affections are diminishing. We're watching it. Are you watching it? Look what's happening to people, to men and women being beaten to death on the streets of the cities of the world. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And you, What's wrong with people? It's, it's a fulfillment of, of, of Bible prophecy. But the point is, is that our love for one another is going to be greater than the, the love of the non-believer for their spouse or, or for their children. 
But our love for Jesus needs to surpass that. And we understand this, don't we? Or we will understand it. You have a child. They don't want to walk with the Lord. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to go to church anymore. Well, as long as you're in my home, you're going to go to church. Get dressed. We're going to church. Oh, I'd never do such a thing. Do you love your children? As long as you have authority over your children, use it. Because one day you won't. And then you just pray, pray, pray. But too many parents give up so easily. You're married to a non-believer. I'm out of this marriage, man. I'm miserable. I'm unco- the Lord doesn't. The Lord wants me to be happy. Where do we get that? What verse is that? But the Bible says that we need to. You know, a non-believer is supposed to stay with their unbelieving spouse as long as they want to stay. If they, if they leave, if they depart, if they abandon you, then you're free in such cases. But you're not free. Until they choose to leave. Do you see what I'm saying? So we say, I need to love her. I need to pray for her. I'm going to share the gospel with her, with him. Why do it? Why do it? A brother in the church used to tell me, because I would come back from seeing my parents, and I would, he would say, well, how would it go? And I said, well, my dad and I got in an argument. You know, we're, I shared the gospel with them, and it went where it always goes. And he said to me, why do you always do that? Why do you always share the gospel with you know that it's going to cause a fight with your father? And I looked at him. I mean, it was like those dead-eyed locked. And I said, because my father's going to hell. Why wouldn't I? The few times I get to see my father in a year's you know, time span, why wouldn't I talk about eternal things? Because I love my father. I don't want my father to go to hell. I want my father to be saved. So I'm going to share the gospel with him. Regardless if it leads to an argument. You know this as a parent. If you have a child that's become a prodigal. You say, oh gosh, I get so weary. The fights and everything else. But, but something spurs you on. It's the spirit of God who dwells within you. Because the next time you have opportunity to talk to that child, adult child. You say, you know, honey, I'm praying for you. And, oh, don't talk about that. I don't want to hear that. I just want you to know that Dad and I are praying for you. And Mom and I, you know, we're concerned for you. And, and, and you know, we've, you, you, you know, you know these things in your mind. And we're praying that, that the Lord would open the eyes of your heart so that you might understand, so that you might comprehend. You do it. Why? Because you love that child. You don't give up. You don't say, for, the, for peace sake, because Jesus is all about peace. No, Jesus said, I brought a sword. It's going to be a sword. There's going to be division in the family of the believer and the non-believer. But we don't give up on each other. We press in. Go back to Luke real quick. I'm, i got like four minutes here. Let's see if I can do it. So, second man, let the dead bury their dead. Uh, their own dead. And then the third guy, look at the verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Harsh, Lord. Not harsh. True. Do you remember? You probably don't remember, but 
two weeks ago when I began <clears throat> the teachings of this, we looked at Luke's gospel. We looked at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And three times we saw Jesus said, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. We just looked at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. And three times Jesus says, is not worthy of me, is not worthy of me, is not worthy of me. And here he says to this fellow, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have been duped. We have, spiritually speaking, we've been dumbed down because of the culture in which we live. We've convinced ourselves we're in America. We're in a Christian nation. We are not in a Christian nation. We are in a post-Christian nation. And when you live in a post-Christian nation, it becomes more and more difficult to be a Christian, to be a light, to be an example, to be, to be what the Lord has called us to be. If you're always looking back, you're not going to move from, from curious to convinced to committed. If you're always looking back, if you're always looking back, it's just a matter of time and you'll be turning back. And we see it, we watch it happen all the time. What happened to so-and-so? Where's this guy? Where's that family? Where are they at? What's going on here? Marielle was in the store, and she ran into the father, the husband, and uh, some of his children. They used to attend the church. They attended the church because they had to. They were under court order. Um, and so they went to a program that we had here, the one-step program. And so husband and wife came. The wife uh, received Christ. I think that the wife and the children absolutely loved the church. He did as well, but I think he had a hard time with me because I was an authority figure, am an authority figure. And sometimes when you're always bucking against the system, you, you have a hard time with that type of authority. And um, Moriel saw he and his daughters. It's been years since they've seen Moriel. The daughters are now teenagers. They run up to Moriel. They're hugging her. Oh, we miss you. We miss the church so bad. Then they turn to the dad and they say to the dad, those were the happiest times of our life when we went to the church. And Moriel, because Moriel, I love that renter, you know, you just take every opportunity. You know, she said, did you hear him, Dad? Did you hear him, Dad? It's not, mind your own business, lady. No, Dad, did you hear him? It's like you want to shake him and say, Dad, are you watching the world? Are you seeing how things are falling apart or falling together? You know, Dad, do you see that time is running short? Dad, your children want to go to church. Dad, why don't you sacrifice your Sunday and at least bring your children to church for their sake, Dad? Because they can't come on their own. Why don't you do it, Dad? Listen, if you want to make people happy, don't become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because here's the fact of the matter. And again, if you have not faced this, I, I, 
either all of your family and friends and everyone you're in contact with is a believer, and so that's why you haven't had issues, or you have watered down your witness to such a degree that you might fall into the category of those people, which would be a shameful thing, when someone says, oh yeah, they go to my church, and the response from the person who hears that, they say, they're a Christian? They're a Christian? I didn't know they were a Christian. We don't want to ever have someone say that about us. They're a Christian? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your non-believing friends and family will, will get annoyed with you. They will get offended by you. They will get frustrated with you. They will, they will, they will. They will... (laughs) Their mentality is everything in moderation. It's good that you believe in Jesus. I'm happy for you. I hope that your Jesus works. But just keep your Jesus to yourself. Don't be fanatical. I remember years ago having teenagers when I was doing the youth high school Bible study. And I had some teenage boys and they said, my, my parents told me that I need to be careful that I don't take this too seriously or become too fanatical because I still live in this world. For most, <laughs> that's not a problem. Because for most, we're not taking the things of the Lord as seriously as we should. The Lord is about to wrap everything up. And I fear that there will be those, you know, that. You know, the old adage, we scoff at it because of the, we don't, but some will, because of the Tim LaHaye books, you know, left behind. But there will be those who will be left behind. They have heard the gospel message. They have heard about, you know, Bible prophecy. They have heard about uh, the rapture of the church. They have heard about these things. They scoff, they laugh, they put it off. Or, or they said, let me first, let me first, let me first. See, it's priorities. Let me first, I will, but let me first go. Let me first go. Let me first bury my dad. Let me first live my life. Let me first, let me first just sow my wild oats and have some fun. I'm young after all. Let let me just, let me just finish with my career and eventually I'll get around to serving Jesus, whatever that looks like. I'm not quite sure what that might look like for me. And it's just pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off. And yet the Bible says that when he comes, he comes with such speed. It's like the twinkling of an eye. And, uh, you know, then it's done. I mean, you're here. And I, I would believe, I would want to believe that you'll come to faith in Christ if you hadn't before the rapture that you would after the rapture because you'd realize what have I done I've I've played with eternal things it's like Vance Havner he had a book it was entitled um, 
playing marbles with diamonds, you know, uh, precious things, but playing a kid's game as if they were just, you know, something cheap like a marble. 